Science is real from the Big Bang to DNA. Science is real from evolution to the Milky You're listening to the Science at the Local podcast with me, Hamish Clark. On today's episode, I speak to theoretical physicist and researcher at the Center for Quantum Software and Information at UTS, Peter Rohde. I'm going to change things around a bit and ask you to introduce yourself for our listeners, if that's okay. My name is Peter Rohde, and I'm a uh, future fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. So that's a position that uh, lets me specialize in research for a few years. And my topic of research is quantum computing and quantum information theory with a special emphasis on cryptography and optical implementation of quantum computing. That's quite an impressive list there, Peter. Well, um, life's not there to be bored, right? (laughs) Uh, Is is that all just kind of normal to you? Does it just flow off the tongue? There's a lot of words. Once you've been asked about what you do so many times, then... um, uh, after a while it becomes very natural and you just have this little library in your head of snippets that you can just pull out on demand. Yes. So I just need to make API calls to this library in my brain. <laughs> we should mention that um, uh, you're also one of our uh, speakers at an event that we had, um, oh, it was a while ago now, a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was, yeah. You distinguished yourself in being, I believe, the only speaker we've ever had not to use PowerPoint slides. Yeah, I um, it's it's actually something that I believe in philosophically that uh, PowerPoint, it can be a good aid in, in the sense that it gives you a graphic to point out or something like that. There are certain things where you need visual cues. But for the larger part, when you're talking freely, you don't really want to be just reading off what's written on the screen or, or pointing at something which you're saying anyway. So it just acts as a distraction. Mm-hmm. So I actually prefer not to use visual aids if possible. Sometimes when I give technical talks, I have to. Mm -hmm. But for the purpose of a public talk, there's really no need to put up complex diagrams and things like that that just create confusion. I thought you did an amazing job too, given the topic. Um, No, thank you. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one for a popular audience to to explain because you have to work off the assumption that people don't have a background in quantum mechanics and and all of these phenomena in quantum computing and the source of that enormous computational power is very deeply rooted in very subtle laws of quantum mechanics that are not very trivial to explain. Mm. Um, It's it's a bit of an art form, I'd imagine, explaining quantum mechanics. Is there something you've thought about much or have you been Uh, inspired by other... So so I do do quite a few of these these public talks and um, pub talks, this kind of thing, Mm. and uh, and giving addresses to to school audiences. So uh, after a while, yeah, you, you develop certain... Uh, standard ways of explaining certain concepts. You know, if mm-hmm. so, so someone says to me now, Peter, you know, tell me about the essential features of quantum mechanics, and I say things like superposition and entanglement. Um, mm-hmm. These are things that I've kind of got pre-processed uh, explanations for in my head mm-hmm. from doing it so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so do you feel like uh... What we know now and, and what you can explain, it's, it's relatively stable or does it keep changing and you're well, having to adjust? No, uh, it, it does keep changing, but it doesn't change the explanations that much because technology mm-hmm. keeps getting better. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you were asked to explain how a microprocessor works today and, or you were asked the same question 10 years ago, your explanation would be roughly the same 
even though there have been astronomical uh, technological developments in that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but those developments are easy to explain. Things get smaller. You fit more transistors on a chip. Mm -hmm. That bit's easy to explain. But the underlying principles haven't actually changed since the very first x86 processor and these incredible things that we have today in our pockets. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so no, the explanations don't change much over, over time. But the wow factor of those explanations does change a lot. Uh, because of the incredible technological progress that's been made in the fabrication and, and manufacture of, the, of these kinds of technologies. Mm. Well, yeah, um, talk about the wow factor then. I mean, the technology is changing so much. Is that, to you, one of the, the most uh, interesting things about what you do is the, yeah, the amazing applications is. that are coming out of it? It is, and, you know, and I'm a pure theoretician. I don't actually build anything. Mm. Uh, I suspect that that makes me even more susceptible to being wowed by these mm -hmm. technological developments. I mean, okay. even classical technologies wow me yes. uh, with, with, what, with the progress that they're making, even though I understand them very well. So, so you know, there, there's an enormous wow factor, yeah. Mm. Um, uh, and so in, in the use of, uh, I guess, quantum uh, mechanics or, or principles in technology, uh, is it one of those things that's safely tucked away under the hood that people just don't need to know about? Or will there come a time when it's in people's interest to understand some of these principles? You mean for, for just the everyday person? Uh, yeah, for example, or for policymakers who might yeah. be regulating things? Well, or... for policymakers, definitely. Um, mm. I think a very uh, generic criticism you can make of many of uh, the developed, highly developed Western democracies is that even though our society is so technologically advanced, in most countries, the uh, politicians are not that impressive in their grasp of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to name any names. I don't want to start any political debates. But if you just look look through the, the, the things that the politicians say about technology, not, not mm -hmm. even quantum technology, just technology in general, like look at the level of political debate that was surrounding the introduction of the National Broadband Network, for example. Glad you mentioned that. There, we'll come back right, to that. There was, I mean, there, there's so much basic stuff that policymakers just don't get mm -hmm. on, on both sides. And mm -hmm. I don't want to point fingers because it's a fairly ubiquitous sure. problem. On our and, next podcast, we can do some finger pointing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, when it comes to quantum technologies, uh, it's going to be an even bigger uphill battle mm. because uh, unless you've studied quantum physics, the, the whole premise of quantum computing doesn't really make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's very dis difficult to grasp why this technology is so difficult, why it requires so much money, mm. why it's worth the investment, what the economic return is going to be. Mm -hmm. That's very difficult to, uh, to, to, to grasp if you don't have a background in at least some of the basics of, of contemporary physics, mm. and very few people do. Yes. So uh, obviously you can't expect every politician to, to come in being a scientific and technological expert in any, in, in any given fields. There's just too much to understand. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, they should be appointing advisors and people that they can turn to mm -hmm. uh, for, for input uh, who really are experts in the field. Uh, and this is why I was, I was very pleased uh, in our recent uh, announcement of uh, Australian of the Year, Michelle Simmons, mm -hmm. director of the Centre for Quantum Computer Technology. Great. She's uh, outstanding at what she does. Needless to say, she understands the technology back to front. Mm. And uh, by giving her this award, it creates awareness for what she does at the political level. All the, all the political eyes were turned to Michelle Simmons when that announcement was made. Mm. And I hope that that's going to encourage him to say, OK, we should find out more about what she does and try and understand it. Mm. 
Yeah, well, scientists work, uh, some of them, I mean, they're all working very hard on their science, but there's uh, an increasing contingent that are realizing, yeah, we we probably do need to talk to politicians or decision makers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so I imagine you know, that's true in your field too. This is one thing that I find um, a bit disappointing about the whole political process. Virtually every sector of the economy has lobbyists working <laughs> for them, <laughs> uh, promoting certain interests. <laughs> the scientific community doesn't really have a good, united coherent scientific lobby organization you can you can be you know really really niche in in what you believe and there'll be a lobby group for you you know you can be a christian there'll be the australian christian lobby you can be Mm -hmm. a business there'll be business council of australia Mm -hmm. scientists seem to be really lacking this and particularly scientists in my field Mm, interesting interesting i know there's the australian academy of science and i should declare a conflict of interest because i'm uh involved in a group called the early and mid-career researcher forum uh-huh. And one of our main goals is to create change, um, you know, positive change for early and mid-career researchers. Uh, and so we've had a few conversations with the Academy, and uh, I think some of them and, and some of us probably feel like lobbying is a dirty word. Mm-hmm. But at the yeah. same time, we uh, we understand be. that, yeah, look, engagement is really important. Um, That's right. Whatever I'm, you want to call it. I'm not it. a fan of lobbying either in the mm-hmm. sense of, uh, rent-seeking, you know, trying to get uh, political reforms made to m- enrich yourself. I'm not in favour of that kind of lobbying. Mm-hmm. But if it's about creating awareness for important issues, mm-hmm. then uh, then I think it's important. You know, the environmental lobby does this very well. They're not mm-hmm. to enrich themselves. They're doing it to create awareness for certain issues. Mm-hmm. And they're an example of an organisation that – or many organisations yes. that do that uh, very, very successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> okay, so um... – uh, maybe we can uh, go back a few steps and uh, can I ask you a bit about how you got into this field in the first place? I found uh, quantum mechanics and just modern physics in general to be absolutely fascinating since I was a child. Mm. And and even before I had the, the mathematical expertise to be able to fully get my head around it, mm. I was reading books on, on quantum physics and, and modern physics uh, because I found it so fascinating. And then uh, I guess... When I was uh, so was young, that during you know high school years or, or university? Before that, even even in primary school, I was fascinated by this, and I, right. and I always knew that I had an attraction to it mm-hmm. and it was something I wanted to be involved in. But of course, when I was a child, this field of quantum computing didn't exist. At that mm-hmm. stage, it was just a generic interest in in modern physics. And then in my teenage years, the uh, the whole quantum computing movement started. And that really fascinated me because my other big passion in life was computing. I was a very much a nerd programmer as a teenager. Mm-hmm. So you got to combine my two mm. real passions and interests, modern Bingo. physics with, yeah, with computer science and, and the implications of it were astronomical. So it was just a very natural fit. Mm, great. So you kind of found out about it one way or another and it was just kind of obvious that that's yeah. what you, you wanted to do and move into. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, initially, just from reading popular science books and new scientist articles, this kind of thing. Mm. And then when I went into university, then I ended up studying computer systems engineering and quantum physics. And mm. that led into doing what I'm doing now. Mm. And my uh, interests haven't sorry. really changed. They're probably going probably gonna to stay doing what I'm doing now uh, for eternity because it still fascinates me just mm-hmm. as much as when I was a kid. That's great. Um, and so uh, let me ask you a, a slightly philosophical question then. Uh, in your experience, um, do people have the passion and, and follow that into the field? Or yeah, do they, they end do. up in the field one way or another and then develop that passion over t- by, by just getting to know the field better? I, you know, 
I don't think anybody moves into academia because it's the only job they could get or mm -hmm. it was the job of last resort. Mm -hmm. Academia is something you pursue when you're completely uh, passionately driven by a fascination of one topic or another. Mm -hmm. So this doesn't just apply to my field, it applies to anything. Mm -hmm. You won't find really a lot of professors in, in a given discipline who aren't absolutely taken and mm -hmm. fascinated and passionate about the topic that they're researching. It's just not, it's just not the career path you would choose if you weren't passionate about it. Because mm -hmm. it's not a good way to get rich, it's not a good way to get famous, it's a way of pursuing your interests. Uh, so, so we're a very passionate bunch, not just me, but uh, the, the whole academic community in whatever fields of science they might be involved in. That's great, that's great. Um, and so, in academia, you can pursue your interests, but you mm -hmm. also need to attract funding. So yeah. you need to somehow pursue your interests in a way that appeals to the mm. funder's sense of what's important, uh, whether yeah. it's you know pure knowledge and gaps in understanding or, or potential applications. Is that mm -hmm. is that a hard thing to do? Or well, I guess the funding model if you're in business or private industry is quite different to what it is in academia. If you're mm. in the private sector, your funding is driven purely by can we make a tangible product that we can sell? Mm -hmm. That's that's the that's the ultimatum you're faced with. If you're an engineer or a scientist in the private sector, you have to contribute to making it some kind of tangible product. With quantum computing, uh, for its entire history up to and including today, there is no tangible commercially viable product. There will be at some point in the future, but we're not there yet. And mm -hmm. so our funding model is very different. We turn to national funding agencies who have a specific mandate, not just to fund things that make money in the short term, but, but invest in things that have strategic long-term benefits. And so that's why that particular funding model actually suits me a lot better than the normal business model, mm -hmm. because uh, the things that I'm really passionate about are things that are very futuristic. Right now, you won't make any money off them. They'll just be a huge sink for money. It won't be a source for, for capital. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we need to have this alternate uh, funding model available to us. Otherwise, the whole thing would flounder and it would never take off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I agree that, that uh, having funding and support for science is really important. Um, uh, so, uh, if you could take a stab in the dark then, and when um, people like uh, Bill Gates or Elon Musk are going to start throwing millions of dollars at uh, quantum computing, yeah. when, when do you so, think that kind of thing might start happening? You're asking at the right time, because right now we are just sitting at the point of inflection in, in the curve of mm. this technology. Mm. Uh, you know, when people first invented the transistor, it was this huge device uh, it had no economic viability whatsoever, and it wasn't until the private sector realized you could miniaturize it and put billions of them into the, something the size of a thumbnail that, that it suddenly became a tangible product. Mm. With quantum computing, we're at a, a point similar to the early boom in the, in the IT sector, whereby private companies are realizing oh, if we can make this work, the implications in terms of making profit are going to be astronomical. Mm -hmm. And so right now, private companies like Intel and Microsoft and IBM and Google, mm -hmm. they're all in, beginning to invest huge amounts of, of private sector capital into it. Oh, and that's, that, that's the point in the curve at which uh, you really see the, the joint in the curve where it changes direction mm -hmm. and really takes off astronomical. 
or astronomically. So mm-hmm. we're at a point where it's going to stop being just an academic curiosity, but the private sector realizes that this is something that really, really could be big in the future. And so now the billions are beginning to pump into the sector. Mm, okay, wow. But uh, you're, um, uh, without putting, <laughs> putting any pressure on you, you're happy uh, where you are and you don't see yourself necessarily uh, oh. going off to work for a company on some it, of It's hard to question. say. It, mm. it kind of, it, there are a lot of variables in that. Mm. I mean, I, it, it, in the upcoming era where, uh, where this kind of technology is commercially viable and there are big private research labs doing this kind of thing, I would have no problem working in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the reasons I said before, in academia, you do have a degree of intellectual freedom that you mm. don't get in the private sector necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it is a very profitable uh, private sector enterprise. Mm. Because in, in academia, you're not obliged to research things that have immediate co- uh, cost return. Mm-hmm. You, you, can in, you can engage in things just because you think they're interesting or cool uh, or speculative uh, without having to worry about will this make a billion dollars in the next year. Mm. So because the incentive mechanism is quite different, I quite like the academic freedom associated with academia but uh, no, I have no problem at all with ending mm. up working in the private sector because in the future, lots of the exciting stuff will be happening in the private sector mm. inevitably. Mm. It's just it's impossible to predict. You never would have uh, foreseen the Microsofts and Googles and IBMs of the world at the early days uh, of, of the IT, of the IT mm-hmm. tech industry. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, okay, so uh, let me issue a little bit of a challenge. Um, yeah. uh, can you talk to us about uh, what you're working on at the moment? Um, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that perhaps I or some of our listeners might understand. Yeah. So, so what I'm really focusing on right now is things that are relevant to what I'm calling the quantum internet. So, when we first had uh, computers, they weren't online; they were just standalone boxes that didn't interconnect in any way, mm-hmm. and they allowed us to do some really powerful uh, time-saving things. But it wasn't until we began networking them all that the real power of computing emerged. Now we all walk around with a device in our pocket that we buy for a few hundred dollars that literally, in the palm of our hand, gives us full access to the entire knowledge of mankind. I mean, you know, and you can communicate with people on the other side of the world spontaneously and effectively for free. Mm -hmm. These are the, it wasn't until we started networking them that these really exciting things started happening. So I, I'm, I'm predicting that the same thing is going to happen in the world of quantum computers. Initially, the first quantum computers are all going to be very expensive devices. Very few people will be able to afford them outright. They'll probably be held by a few well-resourced companies or governments, but they're not something that, that the end user is going to have in their home or that every business is going to have in their, in their, in their warehouse. So what's going to emerge probably is some kind of outsourced model for computation, a cloud-based model. Mm -hmm. So you know how, for example, uh, you can license compute time from Amazon servers. Um, You don't have to have a supercomputer anymore. You just pay a fixed number of dollars to borrow a certain number of CPUs for a certain amount of time, and you've got on-demand supercomputing. I'm predicting the same kind of model for quantum computing in the future. So how do we achieve that? Well, If you want to outsource computation, and keep in mind that when we're talking about quantum computation, we're talking about really, really high-end, powerful, valuable computation that could be worth a lot of money Mm -hmm. in terms of intellectual property or optimization of businesses. So when we outsource uh, to the cloud, we 
data integrity, security is going to be an extremely important consideration. A business isn't one to go and outsource a computation to the quantum cloud if an eavesdropper is going to steal all of their intellectual property uh, en route between source and server. Mm -hmm. So to address this, uh, we've been working a lot on what's called encrypted quantum computing. And the idea is that I can encrypt my data and if you have the computer, I can send my encrypted data to you. You can perform the computation and return it back to me, and then I decrypt it. But with the power of quantum computers, there are ways we've discovered that you, can, you as the server can do the computation without even decrypting the data first. This is something that you can't do classically. Hmm. So, but in the quantum world, if you had the quantum computer and I had the data, I could encrypt it, send it to you. You could execute the algorithm perform the computation on my data without even having to decrypt it first, return it back to me, I decrypt it, and I've got guaranteed data integrity and all the power of a quantum computer. That just so, sounds odd. It does sound odd, and it's hard Which to believe. Which is like a and, lot of quantum mechanics. Sure, and, and, it, and it, it sounds odd because in the classical world, you, people don't really do this. It isn't mm. really viable to do this in the classical world. But by exploiting some of these funny features of quantum mechanics, we can do this with quantum computers. So this is going to play a really important role in the commercialization side of quantum computing, hmm. where people are only going to want to use the devices if they have trust in the security of, the da of their data. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, go on. No, no, that was it. Okay, good, yep. Um, excellent, I think I understood some of that. Um, it does make me think, though, when you talk about things like um, uh, data security, it makes me think of all the, the breaches that we hear about so often now with, yeah. with big companies and databases, and I sure. can't help but wondering if we'll uh, end up in a similar position where there's human error right. coming so into it, there's this, an arms this... race, if you like, between people trying to get the data and people yeah. trying to protect it. See, the good thing about what I just described is that because the server doesn't have to decrypt the data first, suppose the server was Facebook, mm -hmm. um, then, then even if they were adversarial and were secretly wanting to sell the data to Cambridge Analytica, mm. they wouldn't be able to because they don't have the capacity to decrypt the data. They can execute it, they can compute on it, but they can't actually read what the data is. So this is a kind of protection against exactly the sort of thing you just alluded to mm. that will be possible in the quantum world, but won't, isn't really plausible in the classical world of computing. Mm -hmm. Excellent. That sounds promising. Um, uh, okay, here's a very speculative question. Um, uh, as we develop technologies, we you know achieve amazing things. Um, and there always seem to be some kind of unintended effects that come along, uh, which mm -hmm. obviously hard to foresee, so I'm not going to yeah. expect you to foresee what they are, but uh, perhaps you could speculate or pontificate on um, some ways that our, our powers might be increased with this kind of technology that uh, we as societies will have to reckon with in, in one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the first quantum algorithms that was ever invented um, and one of the ones which is still responsible for us getting a lot of funding from military agencies is uh, is in the ability to crack uh, what's called RSA public key encryption. This mm -hmm. is the encryption mm -hmm. standard that's used on the internet for virtually everything. Yep. Whenever you log into your emails or your net bank or whatever, you're using RSA encryption. Mm -hmm. And quantum computers can, uh, if they're sufficiently large, they can quite trivially crack this type of, uh, of encryption. Mm -hmm. So in a future world where we can assume uh, any wealthy government is going to have this kind of technology at our disposal, 
we have to reckon with the fact uh, that the implication is that they can probably intercept and and intelligibly read mm. everything that we've ever written in our entire life. Because keep in mind, organisations like the NSA, mm. um, they don't they don't just uh, process data and throw it away. They keep a backlog of everything. Mm. So everything that you've written in the past um, uh, is, is probably stored on an NSA server somewhere. And even if they can't do anything with it now because it's encrypted, as right. soon as they have powerful quantum computers, they're just going to start working through that back backlog. Mm. So this is this is a big deal for governments now because they some government secrets they remain extremely sensitive mm -hmm. for many mm -hmm. years after when the secret was first created. Yep. There there are military secrets that if they if they got released twenty years from now that would have big implications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now the governments have to reckon with the fact that uh, pretty much anything that they've ever done in the past using these kinds of encryption protocols, mm. we can probably have to work off the assumption that in the future, not only adversarial governments, but even well-resourced criminal organizations mm. might be able to work through the backlog of previously recorded data and start accessing all this stuff. So governments, for example, are working very hard to build what are called quantum-proof uh, encryption standards. So What proof, quantum, sorry? Quantum-proof. Quantum-proof, yeah. Yes, yeah, so mm -hmm. can't be cracked by quantum computers. Mm -hmm. Quantum computers can't crack every type of encryption. There are just right. specific types. They happen to be very popular types. Mm -hmm. uh, but now there's a big push to develop encryption algorithms that even quantum computers can't crack. Yeah, quantum proof. That sounds like a sci-fi uh, movie or, yeah. or novel. Uh, it does sound sci-fi, but I can guarantee you it's a big thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I believe you. Um, have we seen anything in, in popular culture, in, in movies or TV or books that is coming to grips with any of this stuff yet, do you think? You see references to quantum technology all over the place mm. in, in film and TV and the popular press. Anything credible? 99% of the time, they get it completely wrong. <laughs> Either that or they just use the standard um, recycled explanation that's been used by every popular article ever written right, yeah, since yeah. time immemorial. Okay, so there could be a role for you, perhaps a consulting role with a movie studio when the, the next blockbuster comes out in well, maybe it could five be. or it ten years. Be. But in the meantime, this is why I like doing this kind of thing that I'm doing <laughs> with you, is that it gives me an opportunity to, to try and clarify in a hopefully a, a bit more of a factual way some of the misconceptions that the, the, the popular press might give you about quantum technology. Mm, that's great. Well, it sounds like a great topic for our, our next conversation. <laughs> I'm probably totally, yeah. going to have to um, uh, wind it up there because I've already had you for quite a while. But um, No problem at all. Thanks so much, Peter. It was, it was no uh, lovely talking to you. And, uh, I appreciate your time. Yeah, and likewise. And um, uh, I'd love to do it again. Anytime, mate. Possibly a bit of myth-busting. Yeah. Which reminds sure me that uh, our next Science at the Local on the 20th of May is going to feature uh, Peter Ferris, former senior executive with NBN Company, whose top talk is titled Myth Busting the NBN. So um, for anyone uh, in the mountains uh, who's listening before May 20, I uh, would love to see you at Springwood Sports Club. You've been listening to the Science at the Local podcast, available on iTunes, soundcloud.com slash scienceatthelocal, and all good podcast providers. Science at the Local is not just a podcast, it's also a series of bi-monthly talks by expert and engaging scientists delivered in a cosy setting to the good folk of the Blue Mountains. To find out more, go to facebook.com slash scienceatthelocal. Science at the Local is run by me, Hamish Clark, and Kevin Joseph. We're supported by Springwood and Winmalee Neighbourhood Centres. 
and in 2017 by the Inspiring Australia program of the Australian Government. By listening to this podcast, you accept our end user license agreement. Science is real from the 